Well, good morning, Calvary Quakertown. Welcome to our uh, service this morning. We're glad that you're with us. We're in a series that we're calling Speak Up. And this morning, we conclude that series. See, I told you it was going to be short. Uh, we're looking at the Old Testament book of Esther, but we're not looking at all the details. We're looking at three of the main characters. And we're trying to ascertain the purpose of their life. What's their mission? What are they living for? And then we want to compare and contrast what they're living for, what we're living for. And maybe as we work that through, we'll be able to make some changes and alterations in our mission by looking at things that need to change in their mission. Now, the way we're putting it together goes something like this. The mission we adopt determines what we speak up for and what we speak up against. So with the purpose of your life means you speak up for certain things and you speak against certain things. And the longer you speak up and speak against, you're developing a legacy that you will leave to those that come behind. But the process begins with mission, the purpose, the thing you're living for, what's motivating you. And that's what's driving you to speak up. And that speaking up produces a legacy. Now thus far we looked at two missions from the book. And this morning we come to the last of those we'll look at. And that's Haman's mission. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to do something a little different. Turn all the way to the end of Esther. And I want to read with you all of chapter 10. It's only a couple of verses long. We're going to read all of chapter 10. And if, you, if you've been here for the first couple of weeks, you're not going to believe you can get here. Lots of reversals in the book. We're going to read chapter 10, and then we're going to kind of rewind a little bit, and let's see how we get from the beginning to the end, how God's hand is orchestrating this end. So here's what we read in Esther chapter 10. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores. Remember, he was king of everything from India through Africa. And all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. Now, if that mission at the end there sounds familiar, that's because that's pretty close to God's original mission. We need to be living lives for the benefit, welfare, good of other people, right? Living for the benefit of others. That's what's happening at the end of the book, but that's not how the book begins, well, how do we get from the beginning to the end? That's what we're going to talk about today. Haman's mission. We need a little bit of a recap in order to do that. So let's do some catch-up and review, because some of you are still holding on to the remnants of summer, and you haven't been here. So we need a little bit of a catch-up review, and if you were here, maybe you need a little bit of a reminder. It goes something like this. I'll remind you around the characters we've talked about. The first character we're introduced to in the book of Esther is not Esther. It's Xerxes. Xerxes, king of Persia, and he basically rules the known world. He loves to party. His mission is all about power, possessions, and praise. He wants everybody to know that he's the most powerful person in the world. He wants everybody to be awed by all of his possessions and the glory that he's accumulated. And he wants everybody to fear him and praise him. 
So he gives parties a lot to show off his stuff, to show off his power. And he commands people around a lot. And he tells them to jump, and they jump. And all his guests say, oh my goodness, look how powerful he is. Look at all the stuff that he has. And they're praising Xerxes. These missions being accomplished. But then Vashti enters the scene. Vashti is the queen, Xerxes' queen. And Xerxes thinks it would be a really good idea to invite Vashti to one of the drunken parties that he's having and parade her beauty before all of his drunken guests. And Vashti says, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not coming. Well, that kind of sets Xerxes in a tailspin a little bit, doesn't know what to do. He convenes the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court says, she needs to be banished from your presence. Never again should this evil woman be allowed into your presence. He says, that sounds like a plan, and Vashti's banished. And she says, thank you. Well, that's the end of chapter 1. But in chapter 2, you know, Xerxes kind of sobers up a little bit and begins to realize, uh, I kind of miss having a queen around. And, and so then he goes to his personal attendants and says, uh, I miss having a queen now, they're a younger group of, you know, kind of red-blooded Persian guys. And, and they say, hey, we know. Let's choose the new queen by having a, Bur a, you know, a Persia bachelor show. We'll put it on the TV. We'll bring the most beautiful women from all over the empire in. And you can choose the most beautiful woman from the whole empire. And she will be queen. Xerxes loves the idea. And that brings us to Esther. Esther is beautiful. But Esther's life has been full of trouble. Esther's not living in the homeland of her people. That would be Israel. She's living in exile in Persia. She's a Jew. And both of Esther's parents are dead. She was raised by her cousin Mordecai because she was an orphan. So her life has been uh, pretty tough. She's beautiful. She makes it through the preliminaries. She makes it through all the preparation. And believe it or not, Xerxes chooses Esther as the new queen. But they don't live happily ever after. Because there are lots of twists and turns and reversals in the book, remember? And no sooner is she seated on the throne as the queen than we learn about another character. His name's Haman. Now, Haman is kind of vile and despicable. He, he's a real jerk, right? He's a few steps below jerkdom, all right? I mean, he's a, he's a terrible guy. He is into pomp and circumstances, respect, and all of those accolades and tributes that go with it. And so he he's the prime minister, right? He's Xerxes' right-hand man. And he's pretty good at manipulation, as we'll kind of see. And he's so good at manipulation that he, he can basically get Xerxes to do whatever he wants him to do. Well, anyway, there's this other guy in the kingdom. Remember Mordecai, Esther's cousin? He's not really into showing pomp and, you know, kind of respect to somebody like Haman. And so when Haman goes by, he refuses to bow. He won't even, like, you know, duck his head a little bit. Haman is ticked off big time. Haman can't believe that someone in the kingdom will show such disrespect that they won't bow down to him, the prime minister of Persia. Haman is so egotistical, so full of pride, he determines he's not only going to have Mordecai executed, he's going to have all of the Jews executed. Uh-oh, remember? Esther's a Jew. That kind of changes the situation, right? 
So he manipulates Xerxes and gets Xerxes to sign an edict that all of the Jews will be executed on this particular day. Well, Mordecai um, catches wind of this, and he says, oh, you know what? Esther, my cousin, lives in the palace. She'll be able to go up to Xerxes and say, hey, Xerxes, that's really a dumb idea to kill all the Jews. After all, you know, they're, they're pretty good citizens and such. Why don't you let them live? And so Mordecai sends a message to Esther that looks something like this. Esther, if you remain silent, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. You see, here's what's going on. Mordecai says, Esther, go tell the king it's a really dumb plan to kill the Jews. And Esther says, hey, Mordecai, you don't know how things work in here. I can't just walk into the king's presence. He's like really finicky about that stuff. He doesn't let anybody come into his presence unless he summons them. He hasn't summoned me for over a month. If I walk in there and he doesn't raise his scepter thing at me, I'll be executed. And uh, what does Mordecai say? Well, you perish, you perish. Big deal. What The stakes are high here. All the Jews are going to die. And who knows, maybe you're there for such a time as this. And last week we uh, talked about all of the advantages that Esther had, or at least some of them, right? She's beautiful. She's queen. She has access to the king. She has servants. She has all of those things going for her. And Mordecai says, who knows, Esther? Maybe you've been given all of that stuff to put some good into play. Maybe you have all of that stuff so that you can be God's voice to the king and the Jews can be saved. Just maybe you're where you are, not by coincidence, not because of your beauty, but for such a time as this. And if you remember, uh, last week we did a little inventory, or at least I asked you to. And I asked you to run through all of the things that you have. Education, experience, network, family, resources, house, car, job, resume, all the things you have. And we often use the excuse, yeah, but we see things in our world that are wrong. We see things that are broken. But we often respond by saying, yeah, but it's not my fault. It's not my fault there's poverty. It's not my fault there's racism. It's not my fault people are struggling. It's not my fault. Yeah, and you know what Mordecai said to Esther? The same thing I think God wants to say to us. It's not your fault. But it is your time. It is your time. So it's not your fault that people in this area, right around this church, some of them don't have enough to eat, but it is our time to do something about it. And let's collect food for Harvest Home and give those families a great Thanksgiving dinner. It's not our fault that some kids and parents don't have coats as the seasons change, but maybe it is our time to go buy a couple of coats and drop them off at the coat drive. And it's not our fault that the educational system in Philly is in the pits, but maybe it is our time to do something about it by putting a playground in and by collecting toys so we can have a toy store and bring Christmas to families that wouldn't have it elsewhere. And it's not our fault that people are starving by the tens of thousands around the world. That's not our fault, but maybe it is our time to rise up against hunger the night before Thanksgiving and send 100,000 meals overseas so people can be fed. It's not our fault but maybe it's our time. We're going to do an evening of service because of that. Well, that's kind of bringing us up to date in the story. Now I'm going to do a little invitation. I have an invitation for all of you. 
Uh, so here's the invitation. I'm going to invite you to do what God does in the pages of the book of Esther. He's inviting the readers to do something. And he does it through the characters. And that's what I want to do with you. The first invitation is this. I want to invite you to pray. I want to invite you to pray. Now here's an interesting thing. Um, Mordecai sends word to Ezra. Right? They can't meet face to face because she's in a palace and he's just you know, kind of a nobody outside. So it's the, words, the word, their conversation is going back and forth through one of the guards. And so um, Esther says, okay, I'll do it. But before I go into the presence of the king and risk my life, here's what she then tells Mordecai. You go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And at the end of three days, I'll go into Xerxes' presence and I'll ask him to save the Jews. Here's what I find interesting. There's no record that she ever prayed she would win the beauty contest. Isn't, isn't that interesting? I mean, if you're like a nobody, I mean, you pray for things like that, right? You pray for the promotion. You pray for the raise. You pray, you know, to win the thing, uh, maybe to win the lottery. I don't know what you pray for, but you, she didn't pray for that. I just wonder if maybe she looked in the mirror and said, I got this. I got this. I mean, when it comes to the beauty pageant, I got this. I don't need to pray about that. But now when it comes to going into his presence and asking him to save the Jews, I ain't got this. Something bad not only can happen, it probably is going to happen. I better pray about this one. Do you ever face situations like that in your life? You know, the Bible often marries prayer and fasting when the situation seems dire. Now, why is that? Well, because when we fast, let's face it, when we fast, even, even like some of you fast for like an hour, right, or two hours. It, it, even when you fast for a little bit, you're reminded of how weak and frail you are, right? I mean, we can't even go like 10 or 12 hours without eating, without feeling hunger pangs, right? I mean, how weak and frail? Well, when you fast, you're reminded of how weak you are. And isn't that kind of like when you pray for something gigantic, You've got to admit that you're really weak and unable to do it. Esther's praying, she said, I want you all to fast and pray with me because what you're asking me to do, I can't control it all. And if Xerxes doesn't raise that scepter, I'm dead. I need you to pray about this. This is beyond me. Whenever we pray, pray seriously, earnestly about something, it always is the acknowledgement of two things our own weakness and inability, and the power and grace of God. You wouldn't pray if you didn't admit those two things. If you've got this cupboard, right, you've got it handy, you wouldn't pray, you just go do it. And so you've got to admit your weakness to pray, but you also have to admit that God can do something about it, or you go talk to somebody else, not him. You talk to God, but you also have to believe that he cares enough about you and loves you enough that he's willing to do something about it. I have a... I have a friend, I actually have a few of them, but, but I have a friend who, who owns a, a number of uh, very profitable businesses. And they're all growing rapidly. Now, if I just told you some of the statistics of his businesses, you would all probably get this impression. 
Boy, everything this guy touches just turns to gold. He must be confident and pompous and full of himself and proud and egotistical. And none of that's true at all. He's humble. He always is asking questions and seeking advice. And if I've heard him say this once, I've heard him say this at least two dozen times. Charles, I have no idea what I should do. So I'm going to take a day off and I'm going to get quiet and ask God to show me what to do. That's amazing for someone in that position, isn't it? I need to take a little time out and just get quiet with God because I don't know what I should do, but God does know. You know, every time we pray, the way Esther's telling everybody to pray, here's what that prayer means. Help, help. I'm in a situation and I can't do anything about it. Help, you can and you love me enough. Will you please pray? So whatever you're facing, acknowledge your weakness. Acknowledge God's power and the fact that that he loves you. That's what the Bible says. And live that out as you pray. Well, the next thing isn't just prayer. Esther then speaks up. And think about the courage, right? So at the end of three days, she's been praying. All the people have been praying. And on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes, stood in the inner courts of the palace, and my guess is you could hear her knees hitting each other as she stood there, right? She's in front of the king's hall. The king's seated on the royal throne in the hall. She's facing the entrance. He sees her. She winces. He raises the gold scepter and says, Esther, where you been? Come on in. What would you like? I'll give it to you, up to half the kingdom. Now, you've got to understand. Whenever a king talks like that, what is your request? I'll give it to you, up to half the kingdom. That's king speak. That doesn't mean he would give her half the kingdom. In fact, if she were to say, hey, you know, I'll take you up on that. I'll take, you know, I'll take India and the Middle East. Give me that part. She'd have been dead in a minute, right? So it's not really what he means. What he really means is, I'll let you hold the remote control for a minute. All right? that, that, that's about all it means. So what do you want? I'll give you half the kingdom. You can, you can change channels one time. That's about all it is. Now here's where Esther shows great wisdom. So here, here are the things. Pray, speak up, and be wise. Be wise. Here's the wisdom part that, that, that I find fascinating. Esther says, well, here's my request. Now, if she's like you or me, here's what we say. Haman wants to kill all the Jews. Stop them. That's not what she does. She knows Xerxes. She's politically savvy. She's shrewd. In fact, when I read these verses from, a, you know, go back to the Matthew verses. When I read the Matthew verses, I often think of Esther. Jesus says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as, now she's not very innocent, but she's shrewd. So here's what Esther says. Oh, Xerxes, my king, here's my request. I'm giving a really big party And I would like you and Haman to come. Xerxes, he could never turn down an invitation to a party, right? He says, really? I'm there? Is that the request? That's not half the kingdom. That's a big party. Yes, sign us up. Haman's coming. He doesn't have to check what Haman, he tells Haman's coming, right? So now there's going to be a big banquet for the three of them. Well, they all show up at the banquet, right? The three of them, Esther's there. And so after a few drinks, the main course and all, Xerxes, oh, yeah, we're here for a reason, right? And up to half the kingdom thing. Hey, Esther, come here a minute. 
what is it that you want? You know, like there was a request and that's why we're here and this isn't the end, right? This, well, what's the end game? Oh yeah, the end game is I'm having another banquet tomorrow. Would you and Haman come back tomorrow? And the king says, another party? We're in, Haman, you're coming back. We're, they're going to another party tomorrow. Now you and I think, why doesn't she get to the point? Well, because she's wise, she's shrewd, right? Now here's where the uh, peripety, the reversal, really takes over full speed. Haman leaves, and he's on cloud nine, right? Think about it. An egomaniac, pride-filled prime minister. He's being invited to banquets, and the only other guests are the king and the queen. I mean, Haman, he's telling everybody. But as he's walking home, he passes Mordecai. And Mordecai doesn't tip his head, doesn't bow down, and he's livid. All of that, you know, all of that good feeling from being invited, he's now ripped, ticked off. He gets home and he says to his family, you know, I've been invited back to this party, but nothing else matters. I know I've got kids. They don't matter either. It doesn't matter all this money I've got, all these vacations. What matters is that Mordecai won't bow down. His wife says, why don't you build a big gallows 75 feet high and hang his butt on it? He says, that's a great idea. So he, he's going back to the palace to get permission to hang Mordecai on the gallows. In the meantime, Xerxes can't sleep. He has insomnia, royal insomnia. So he sends for the royal readers. If you're a king and you can't read, you don't read yourself. You have somebody come read to you. So the royal readers come in and they say, Oh, King Xerxes, what would you like read? I want you to read the, the book about me. They say, Oh, the Xerxes book, yes. And they read a book about me. And lo and behold, the passage that they read is the passage about when Mordecai foiled an assassination attempt on Xerxes' life. Some of the guards were going to try to kill Xerxes. Mordecai overhears it. He tells the guards, and the king's life is spared. And Mordecai, so the king says, oh my goodness, how did we reward Mordecai? And they say, you've never done anything for Mordecai. Okay, well, we need to reward him somehow. Haman's coming back into the palace now. Um, to get permission to hang Mordecai on the gallows. The king's thinking, boy, how am I going to reward Mordecai here? And so the king can't think of a good reason or, or a good thing to do. And then as he enters, the guards say, hey, Haman's here. Oh, Haman, look, you're my right-hand man. What would a king do for somebody that he really wants to honor and he really wants to kind of reward? Of course, Haman thinks it's him, right? He said, oh, here's what you should do. You need to put your robes on the guy, put your crest on your favorite horse, and have, have the servants run in front of the horse telling everybody, this is the king's right-hand man. The only person ahead of this person is the king. That's what you should do. And then the king says, okay, Haman, you be the guy running ahead of the horse and do that for Mordecai. <laughs> yeah, the story's beginning to turn, right? Well, by now... Haman's beginning to figure out this is not going to end well. But he can't miss the next party. So right after he walks the horse around with Mordecai on its back, he goes to the party, the second party. And after the drinking in the main course, the king says, So Esther, what's that request you want? And Esther says, Oh my king, all I want is to live. And he says, what? Somebody's trying to kill me. 
He says, who in their right mind would try to kill my queen? And she says, that vile, good-for-nothing Haman, he's the one. The king is livid. He goes out to get some fresh air, wondering how he's going to kill Haman. He comes in and finds Haman lounging on the sofa, begging Esther for his life. He thinks he's trying to molest the queen. And Haman gets hung on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. That's how we get to chapter 10. Native appearances, God is in control. Whether it's Las Vegas, whether it's hurricanes, or whether it's Persia, in spite of appearances, God is in control. Well, let's end by looking at a few questions. We ended each message with questions, so let's have a couple questions today. Uh, here's the first one. Do you believe in coincidences? Do you believe in coincidences? There are a whole bunch of seeming coincidences in Esther. Let me just mention a few. It's just coincidental that Esther's really beautiful. It's just coincidental that the royal attendants say a beauty contest will determine the next queen. It's just coincidental that the king can't sleep. It's just coincidental that the readers choose the place about Mordecai not being rewarded. It's just coincidental that Haman happens to enter the hall at that time. It's just coincidental that Haman built a gallows for Mordecai that he winds up getting hung on. It's just a series of coincidences. Yeah, right. How about when you look at your life? Look back over your life. There are a lot of rough spots, right? I mean, every one of you in this room has pain in your story. Do you think that that pain is just coincident? Do you think that the good things there is just coincidental? You know what the Bible tells us over and over and over again? There are no coincidences. There is a sovereign, loving God who orchestrates the affairs of our lives just as he wants and our mission, little mission, under God's big mission is determined not only by knowing what the Bible says, it also comes by knowing how God built us and knowing the experiences that he put us through. All that stuff is going to be used by God. And so how do you determine what God wants you to do? By knowing the Bible and knowing your life. Look back over those experiences. What's God saying to you, right? What's he saying through those experiences? What, what's he building you for? What's he shaping you to do? Don't just look at the Bible. Look at your life. There are no coincidences. Now, uh, what's God saying? Here's one of the problems we have with the Bible. And hopefully we cleared that up last week, but let me just remind it again. Here's one of the problems we have when we come to the Bible. We often think the Bible is a workbook rather than a storybook. Do you remember, I used to hate workbooks. Remember workbooks? Thank God I'm not in school anymore. Um, remember workbooks? Workbooks had lots of blanks in them. Workbooks had problems in them. Workbooks have formula. Like when you get a workbook, you have to kind of figure out stuff. You sweat. You get stuff wrong all the time. You get a grade. You finally got to take the course over again, get a new workbook. A lot of people think the Bible's like a workbook, right? And the Bible gives me all the stuff I have to do. And if I do a really, really good job, if I fill in all the blanks the right way, I answer all the problems correctly, I not only get the blanks, I fill in, I apply the formula correctly, and I get all the right answers, then God will accept me and love me. The Bible's not a workbook. If the Bible were a workbook, we wouldn't have Esther in the Bible. The Bible's a grace book. That's why Esther's in the Bible. And if the Bible were a workbook, none of our names would be recorded in a book called Life either. But since the Bible's a grace book, 
Your name can be there, even though you're fallen and flawed, your name can be there because it's a grace book, it's not a workbook. Somebody else did the work. Some of you are probably thinking, what the heck can we learn from Haman? Well, let me tell you a little bit we can learn from Haman. I think we can learn a lot from Haman. And I'm not only talking about things you shouldn't do. What Haman wanted wasn't wrong. What Haman asked for wasn't wrong. What did Haman want? Haman wanted to be somebody, right? Haman wanted security because he knew this life is really insecure. And he figured if he had enough stuff, if he had an in with the king, and everybody knew he had an in with the king, he would have security. But he didn't just want security, he wanted significance. He wanted to be a somebody who was secure and significant. And so he figured the only person in the kingdom higher than him was Xerxes. And if, the, and if that person of ultimate security and significance would show him acceptance, security, and significance, then he would be secure and significant. He didn't ask for the wrong stuff. When he was found out, he begged for forgiveness. There's nothing wrong with begging for forgiveness. I mean, you read through the Bible, asking to be forgiven is a good thing. Nobody's ever condemned in the Bible for asking to be forgiven. So Haman wanted to be significant. He wanted to be secure. He wanted to be forgiven. He wanted all of that stuff. None of it's wrong. He didn't ask for anything wrong. What was his problem? He went to the wrong king. That was his problem. He asked the wrong king. He went to Xerxes. Hey, Xerxes, most secure and significant one. Can I wear your robes and can I be secure and significant? And Xerxes says, sure, put the robes on. Oh, yeah, those robes are moth-eaten and destroyed today. Xerxes, please forgive me. Esther, please forgive me. That's the wrong king, the wrong queen. It's not wrong for you to want to be somebody. It's not wrong for you to want security temporally and eternally. It's not wrong for you to want glory. None of that's wrong. And when you realize you screwed up, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be forgiven. The message of the Bible and the message of this book is when you want significance, when you want security, when you want forgiveness, they're all good things to want. Just make sure you go to the right king. And when you ask him, he'll give it all to you. Not because the Bible's a workbook because the Bible's a grace book. You want those things, just like I do. Make sure you go to the right king. And when you ask him, he'll grant them to you. And then say, I make you secure today and forever. What more significance is there than to be a child of God whose father and older brother rule the affairs of the universe. And what greater statement for rebels and sinners like us to have forgiven written over our heads forever. There's nothing better than that. Security, significance, forgiveness. Nothing wrong with any of that. Just make sure you go to the right king to get them. He's willing and able to grant you all of it. Just, to, just for the asking. Let's stand and pray.
Lord, we give you thanks for this uh, crazy little book full of twists and turns and unexpected conclusions and dead ends that become highways. And Lord, when we read through, we discover it's a lot like our lives. Twists and turns and dead ends and we think this, but all of a sudden that. And Lord, help us to realize that we live in a broken and evil world. Justice will prevail because there is the ultimate king who sits over the affairs of history. And that justice means we will be held accountable too. And that's why we need to come to the right king and ask for security, significance, and forgiveness. And once those are granted, we need to hear from you. Now follow me and put those same traits into play as you give them to others. We pray in the name of Christ, our ultimate king, who gives us what we long for. Amen. Well, if you would like to chat with someone, there'll be people up here to talk to you. Otherwise, you guys go and follow the right king.